It's Johanna Masca. This week on Press Advance, my guest is Janet Napolitano. If you don't know Janet Napolitano, you should. She served as the third United States Secretary of Homeland Security. She was a governor of a border state, Arizona, and she served as the president of the University of California system. She has a vantage point few could imagine. I have to start with the job of Homeland Security Secretary. There's been a lot in the news about the Homeland Security Secretary right now. And I think most people don't actually know that the post is relatively new. It was only after America was attacked September 11th that Tom Ridge became the first director of the Office of Homeland Security. And it wasn't a cabinet secretary position until January 2003, when Ridge became the cabinet secretary. Michael Chertoff was the second Homeland Security Secretary. And so you were the third. You were the first Homeland Security Secretary under a Democratic president. So (laughs) I have to start with what role did you think you were getting when we all came into office and what role did you actually have? The theory behind the creation of DHS was that the attack on 9-11 was not prevented because certain gaps and points were not connected. And that if you had all these different agencies under one roof, you would improve the likelihood of coordination. Now, coordination is certainly better, but we have a big federal government and information comes in from all sources. So it's never going to be 100%. But DHS, I think, has helped fill that initial role. And when you think about DHS, it has so many missions, but you know the primary mission was anti-terrorism, protection of the nation's critical infrastructure, protection of the nation's borders, both land and sea, protection of the nation's transportation sector, air, land, and sea, and protection of the nation's cybersecurity. So when you kind of lay it out like that, and, and also handling the response and recovery from natural disasters that are large enough to require a federal presence. I think we take our safety for granted too often. I mean, what kept you up at night when you were head of this massive organization? When you run a shop like DHS, you have to be able to compartmentalize and get your sleep when you can, which I did. But it is a job when you get calls at all hours because things are always happening that require the secretary's input. In terms of cybersecurity and the nation's critical infrastructure, I think an important point needs to be made. And that is most of our nation's critical infrastructure, our power grids, our banking, our water, et cetera, are held in private hands. They're in the private sector. And so really the role of DHS in part is to coordinate between the federal government and the private sector, the utilities, the big banks, the water companies, et cetera, that control uh, and operate our nation's critical infrastructure. Very different than many other countries. So Alejandro Mayorkas was sworn in February 2nd of 2021, three years, and there's a call for his impeachment. You know, ultimately, it's just a game, I'm sure. But he has so many things on his plate other than just the you know nation's immigration policy. But how would you grade the job he's doing on immigration right now? You know, first of all, I have to say that the impeachment is a disgrace. It is a misuse of the impeachment authority given to Congress in the Constitution 
They cannot point to a single high crime or misdemeanor that Secretary Mayorkas has done. It was embarrassing, and it's a terrible precedent. In fact, my Republican predecessor, Michael Chertoff, and I, and then my successor, Jay Johnson, co-wrote a letter to Speaker Johnson. I think it got picked up in the Washington Post and maybe a little bit in the Times, uh, decrying the use of the impeachment for what essentially is a problem that Congress needs to deal with. And Congress had that opportunity just last week with a very strong border bill. And because of politics, that's the way I read it anyway, they rejected it. Instead, they put all the blame on one man, the Secretary of Homeland Security. Ridiculous. You know, we need order at the border. I'm a border state governor. I know that border very, very well. I've dealt with it. I dealt with it as a prosecutor. I dealt with it as a U.S. attorney, as an attorney general, as a governor. And the numbers now far exceed anything that we confronted in the Obama administration. In fact, Obama's numbers in terms of illegal immigration and deportations and so forth were frankly better than Trump's. And people overlook that. But order at the border needs more resources. It needs more agents. It needs more immigration judges to clear out that backlog. They need to streamline the asylum process, put it under some time limits, and they need to increase the number of work visas so that people can cross lawfully into the United States. And we know who they are and primarily where they're going. That to me is order at the border. All of those ingredients were included in that Senate bill. It was a very strong bill. In fact, it was 95%, I would say, more of a Republican bill than a Democratic bill. Um, And so I was really dismayed to see politics intervene and prevent those reforms. Well, you're right. Order at the border, we need. And right now we've got governor of Texas who's decided that he wants to bring his own order to the border. Yeah, he's a chaos agent. He has always been. I mean, when he was Governor Abbott, when he was attorney general of Texas, he used to say that his job was to get up in the morning, go to work, sue the Obama administration and then go home. You know, I was an attorney general. I did sue the federal government from time to time, but I didn't think that was my only job. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So anyway, you know, Texas would be much better off if Governor Abbott would coordinate with the federal government, which has responsibility for an international order. Texas would be better off and the country would be better off if Governor Abbott rather than just shipping people willy-nilly, coordinate with other governors and mayors so they would at least know how many to expect and when to anticipate their arrival. He won't even do that. He's in it to cause chaos, not to solve a problem. Having been a border governor now, you did use every resource at your disposal. Yeah, I was the first governor to put the National Guard on the border. But I didn't do it to supplant or to replace the Border Patrol, but to back up the Border Patrol. In other words, to take some of the paperwork and office work that the Border Patrol had to do so that more of the actual federal agent time could be spent in the field. But I did not view the National Guard as a military force to militarize the border. You know, recognize Mexico is the number one trading partner of the United States. There are hundreds, if not millions of jobs in the United States that are dependent upon that trade back and forth across the border. So in this era right now, with the numbers being what they are, and the numbers are bad, I think they are bad. You know, I just can't excuse that. 
But nonetheless, we have to realize that it has to be a functioning border. And as I keep saying, there needs to be order at the border. Yeah, they are bad. The numbers are bad. And, you know, Galesburg, Illinois, we lost Maytag. Maytag moved to Mexico. So there's a fear that I think Trump tapped into. You know, you are right that during the Obama administration, they were some of the lowest numbers. Are there things that this administration could do differently to get those numbers down? I think they're doing, you know, basically everything they can and have resources to do. Part of the problem is that Congress, it says all these grand things, but it, it has not really significantly increased the budget for Customs and Border Protection. It's basically the same budget now as they had um, in the last year of the Obama administration. And the numbers have increased dramatically, but importantly, the composition of the numbers has changed. So during my time, which is basically the first five years of the Obama administration, we were seeing a lot of single males from Mexico, many coming to work in the United States. And, you know, they made up the majority of undocumented migration into the United States. Now you're seeing many more families with children, and that creates a different ethos and a different environment. And you're seeing people fewer from Mexico, but more from countries of Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, but also Venezuela, also Cuba, also China. It's a very different mix. And and you have many more people arriving to claim asylum. And that activates our asylum procedures. And only Congress can change those because those are set in law. Do you think any foreign governments or foreign folks are involved in creating the chaos at the border? I mean, in China, the citizens don't have free will. (laughs) How are people, you know, showing up to our southern border? I mean, India is a different situation where you've got a democracy that's really been taken over by Modi. And you have a lot of people from India also showing up at our border, which is bizarre to me. But are there outside forces or is this just individuals who are choosing to come through the southern border and try to seek asylum in the U.S.? I don't know of any um, intelligence that suggests that foreign state actors are actually sending people to cause chaos at our border. You know, the number of Chinese last year was 30,000 which was a lot higher than previous years, but compared to the size of the Chinese population is, yeah, it's minuscule. They come to South America, sometimes on a tourist visa, and then they leave and make their way north, come through the Darien Gap, et cetera. And my understanding is that many of them are younger people who are seeking basically freedom. And that's what, you know, we were having some of these debates on News Nation. There's such concern in the Republican circles of the Uyghur genocide, which is legitimate. But I was saying, you know, if we're seeing people, do we get the information on what they're fleeing? We do, right? Yes. But, you know, there's this trope out there that there are terrorists and others crossing our border. And that translates into we have to have 100 percent control over that whole 2,000 mile border. And what that means in some people's minds is everybody who tries to cross gets apprehended. Well, actually, under the Biden administration, the apprehension rates have gone way up. But realistically, pragmatically, you can't put the entire United States like under a Tupperware container, right? It just doesn't work that way. And unfortunately, some are bound to get through. 
So what you need to be able to do is to process more people through the ports of entry. And that way you actually know who they are, where they're going, and then apprehend as many as you can between the ports and then debrief them and put them into the process as well. Easier said than done. And that's what my orchestras run into. Why? Because, you know, whereas in the Obama administration, I think when I was secretary, we did maybe four to 500,000 apprehensions a year. In December of this past year, the, the Border Patrol did 300,000 in just one month. And now that's dropped. The last month, uh, it dropped almost in half, but it'll go back up again. There's a cyclical nature to it. Well, and Republicans tell me, oh, you know, it's because the Biden administration is advertising an open border. And I've said, I've never heard a Democrat say there's an open border at all. But I have heard Republicans saying there's an open border. So (laughs) I, I, I just think this rhetoric is getting out of control. I mean, you were governor of such an interesting state with Arizona. It's somewhere Carrie Lake, of course, ran for governor. I am very grateful right now that she is not governor because I can imagine if, you know, Abbott is causing chaos in Texas and you had Lake, you know, joining him in Arizona, that would be just scary situation. Did you know Carrie Lake? I may have met her. She was basically a Fox News reporter in Arizona when I was active there. So I may have met her at an event or something, but I don't know her. Yeah. Uh, Now I've read enough and seen enough of her since then to say she's a different kind of Republican. It's so curious because she grew up in Iowa, not that far from Galesburg, Illinois. And I'm just kind of, you know, I don't know what to make of her, but what do you think about this Senate run now? And of course, Kristen Sinema becoming an independent. So Kirsten was in the state legislature when I was governor, and she came in as very liberal. But the Democrats were in the minority in both chambers of the Arizona legislature. And I think she realized and matured and realized she couldn't get anything done unless she reached across the aisle. And that kind of became her mantra. And she went, uh, got, there was an open congressional district. She ran, was elected to Congress, served a couple of terms. And then uh, when there was a, a Senate seat available, she ran and she ran a campaign very similar to how I ran when I ran as governor. You have to turn out the Democrats. You have to do really well with the independent voters because they make up at least a third of the Arizona electorate, maybe more now. And then you try to get a swath of moderate, in my view, pro-choice Republicans and particularly Republican women. So she ran a real coalition-based campaign. She now has left the Democratic Party formally and registered as an independent. Her reelect is this year. She has not yet declared whether she's running. Lake is uh, likely to be the Republican nominee. There's a, a Republican sheriff from Pinal County who's in the race, but I think Lake will take it. And then an existing congressman, Ruben Gallego, who is running on the Democratic side, whose former wife actually is the mayor of Phoenix. So that's kind of interesting. So how you poll and how you test and how you campaign in a three-way race, if Kirsten decides to run, I think will be really interesting. I I don't quite know how they do it. I think if it's one-on-one, Gallego versus Lake, it'll be a barn burner. It'll be really tight. But I think Gallego has a very solid chance, very good chance. And I take my lessons from what happened in the fall of 22, when 
the Republicans nominated all kinds of election deniers and MAGA folk, including Lake, and they all lost. They lost the governorship. They lost the attorney generalship. They lost the secretary of state. They lost up and down the ballot. But that three-way situation could change it a little bit, although I think you're right. Oh, for sure. I don't know, though. Are there a lot of Democrats in Arizona who would still back cinema? Because at least in my circles, people are kind of scratching their heads about cinema and like what she stands for. Because to your point, she was very liberal originally and now isn't and is an independent. You know, it's really hard to say. If she decides to run, right now the polling has her running third to Gallego and Lake. But she has a lot of money left over from prior campaigns. She hasn't raised much money this past year, and certainly not in the past quarter. But she has a pretty hefty bank account from prior campaigns she can use. And she's a hard worker. She's a hard campaigner. So it's difficult to read that race if she gets in it. That'll be interesting. The other senator, of course, Mark Kelly, is one who uh, I know David Pluff and I have both said could be a great presidential candidate, you know, from a interesting state in terms of he would probably pull a more moderate Midwestern voter. Have you stayed in touch with Mark Kelly at all? Generally, not in close touch, but I've watched his career with great interest and his record is really, a, you know, interesting. And he's a former astronaut. He's married to former Representative Gabby Giffords. And after she was tragically shot in the shopping center in Tucson in 2011, really worked with her on developing their nonprofit, which is Giffords, which is an advocacy group for gun safety, and then decided to run for the Senate, ran a very, very good campaign, ran a very good campaign last time against a a Trump-backed candidate named Blake Masters. And I think he has a great future. Well, it was interesting to see Blake Masters, who, of course, knew Peter Thiel, I think even from their university days or something like that. University education is the next topic that I want to talk with you about because you have now been the president of University of California system, uh, the state of university of education. It's so difficult. When I was a student at the University of Kansas, I think our tuition was about $3,000 a semester. Now that same tuition is in the tens of thousands of dollars. We're the only country that deficit finances our education on the collateral of young people's brains. I have so many concerns about the state of education, but the debt that we have for this education seems irresponsible as a nation. It also seems like sometimes there's a disconnect with what people are educated for and the jobs that they get. I mean, I know a lot of people from even my University of Kansas days who did not end up getting jobs that they were educated for in the college system. What do you think one of the financing of college and two of the preparation that we are doing of the next generation to get the jobs of tomorrow. So student debt, I think, is a real problem. It's been allowed to accumulate and accumulate over the years. Now, at the University of California, if you're a California resident and your family makes less than $80,000 a year, you pay no tuition. That part is free. The housing is not free. That's another issue. But Um, the tuition is free. And in the end, um, what that means is literally over half of University of California undergraduates graduate with no debt. 
And those who graduate with debt, the average is around $22,000 of debt for the entire four or five years of their undergraduate education, which when you think about it, that's the price of a small car and cars depreciate the minute you drive them off the lot. Your investment in your education appreciates economically. And the studies continue to show that over the course of a lifetime. Where the debt really gets severe is in graduate school. And when you see the six-figure debts for people who are doctors, who want to go into public health, who want to go into social work and get a master's in social work, which is not a well-paid profession, I must say, it's very troublesome. And then when you see the amount of debt precluding people from going into the kinds of jobs they want because they need to make more money to pay off the debt and preventing them from buying homes or in some cases even getting married and starting families and so forth. Then you have to say, look, enough. There are countries in Europe, many countries in Europe, that provide free public higher education. On the other hand, people pay way more in taxes than we do in the United States. That's a choice, and we've made that choice. You know, the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that President Biden did not have the authority to cancel the amount of debt he tried to cancel. But Congress has that authority. They could act, but they uh, so far seem unwilling. So it remains a, a very much a concerning problem. And I know I, I'm currently a professor at UC Berkeley, and there's tremendous pressure to keep costs down and to keep the level of student debt down. And I hope people don't feel like we're just wasting their money because what we're doing is preparing the next generation for all the challenges they're going to confront. Now, the next question you asked was about the mismatch between what people were educated for and jobs. And part of that is how you view the purpose of a college education, right? Is the purpose of a college education to be job training or is it to teach students things like critical thinking skills, things like an appreciation of American history and civics? Is it learning how to work in groups, learning how to take an idea and convert it into a paper or a project, a tangible thing? I think in a way it should be a little bit of both. I think that students, even students in fields where it may look like there are no jobs, are learning skills that can be translated into jobs. And I'm continually told that by people down in Silicon Valley. They're looking for creative thinkers and people who can work in teams and people who can produce a project and things of that sort. They said, we'll teach them the other stuff. And I think that's right. I mean, we're not a job training center per se. We're a preparation center for entering into full adulthood in the United States. I do hear the concerns like I have family members in HVAC and plumbing and the like. And, you know, the idea of canceling student debt, you know, on what they view as tax dollars, you know, they're opposed to. I've always thought it would be smarter for us as a Democratic Party to be behind some sort of loan forgiveness for service, some sort of, you know, if you're going into that social work field, if you're doing community service, if you're going into education and the education credentials is a whole other thing. I, I think that people, you know, should be able to get those education credentials. But my God, the amount of student debt we're creating for just our teachers is insane. What do you think about that kind of a loan forgiveness program? Is that somewhere? 
somewhere where we could find commonality with others? I think so. And, you know, there have been a number of attempts to do that, to provide for loan forgiveness in exchange for spending a certain number of years in certain needed professions. Even in the medical field, I mean, if you go into the Indian Health Service, for example, there's an extensive loan forgiveness program for that. And I think there is common ground there. I appreciate the argument that your family members are making, the the HVAC folks and, and others saying, why should I pay for somebody else's college education? I didn't get a college education. I'm paying my taxes. That's a hard argument to refute. But I think that people can accept, look, if our college educated youth are willing to contribute in a service sort of way, et cetera, et cetera, they get a break. Well, and that's what I hear from Republicans is they'll essentially argue don't we have those things in military service and in some of the programs that we have? They're not big enough or widespread enough. And the paperwork associated with it has been problematic from time immemorial. So if you're going to do it, you got to do it big time and you got to streamline it and you got to sell it. We have seen such polarization on college campuses, whether it's been the Middle Eastern conflict, we're seeing, you know, the pro-Palestinian marches, we're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism, we're seeing a rise in Islamophobia, we're seeing, you know, all of these issues come to bear. I often try to understand where is it coming from? You know, in Washington state, I saw some professor who was teaching something that I was like, that doesn't have a historical basis. I'm a little concerned about this, but I don't know if it's always the educators or if it's the social media climate that these kids are growing up in. You're on a college campus. I mean, Berkeley has always had its fair share of protests, but what are you seeing in terms of that polarization? College students today, the ones I interact with, are very impressive. They're really smart. They're energetic. They're concerned about the state of the world. They want to do something about it. They're concerned about climate change. They're concerned about the health of the United States. They're concerned about the kind of country that they are entering into. They're not particularly enthralled with the current state of our electoral politics, and I can't say I blame them, but they're very impressive group. Now, you know, in terms of protest activity, colleges have always had a certain amount of protest activity, Berkeley more than most, but you know, colleges have always had some, and you have to realize these are young people, you know, they're 18, 19, 20 years old. They're still formulating ideas. They're, they're still gathering information. I think our role is to educate them. So when they protest, they have some real knowledge at their base and are not just taking stereotypes as their mantra. But, you know, I'm not too upset when protests, and I would say orderly protests, happen on college campuses? If they're not going to happen there, where are they going to happen? No, you're right. What do you think about what happened to Harvard's president? Well, I saw the replay of the hearing, and I testified some 55 times when I was secretary. And here's the thing. Those hearings, and particularly hearings like that, are not set up to exchange information. They're set up to be show trials. And that's what that was. It was a show trial. If I can fault the three presidents, is they treated it as a real hearing. It wasn't a hearing. And they needed to be strong and definitive, and they weren't. They were very academic in their responses. Well, they're academicians. What do you expect? But in answer to particularly uh, Representative Stefanik, they should have been definitive and strong and just given it right back. 
so that was a disappointment. Now, the situation at Harvard got complicated because of the plagiarism allegations that followed. And I haven't delved into the details of those, so I really can't comment to those. But I must say, in many respects, it was just sad to watch. It was. And I think there should be no place for hate on any campus, but more exchange of ideas. You know, I think you're right. There are so many promising young people at our universities, and I love that you're giving them the tools to be successful, to have what they need to prepare us for the next century. The last question I have, you know, it's a different political climate than even when we were serving in the Obama administration or in states. There's so much growing tribalism, divisions here and around the world. And so I have to ask, are Americans safe? I think we are safer than we were prior to 9-11. And I can say that with some confidence. You know, the notion that a group can weaponize commercial aircraft and fly them into iconic buildings No, we've solved that problem. The security environment constantly evolves. So when I became secretary, I was focused on tourism. I was focused on the border. I was focused on aviation security. We were still having a lot of threats against the aviation uh, sector when I became secretary. And I spent maybe 10% of my time on cyber matters. By the fifth year, I was spending like 40% of my time on cyber matters. And it just, because it changes, right? The world changes. Uh, now we have all of the security challenges associated with climate and climate change, which are much more prevalent now, even than they were when President Obama was, was in office. Now we have artificial intelligence, AI, which uh, I think we're just beginning to understand its ramifications and the good it can contribute to, but also the risks that are associated with it. And what do we do about that? And then the geopolitical environment changes. So we have Russia invading Ukraine and why Congress can't see fit to arm Ukraine is a mystery to me. I think they haven't read their World War II history closely enough. We have Israel, Hamas. We have the rise of China and uh, what China is doing militarily and elsewhere and geopolitically. We have North Korea, which is a, a nuclear power not to be ignored. And so that whole environment presents risks and challenges and opportunities for the United States. But it, we do live in a complicated world, no doubt. Well, you certainly started out talking about, as Homeland Security Chief, you had to compartmentalize and not get too worried about every threat that we face, even though you're tackling them every day. I think that too often, you know, we get so worried we're not able to enjoy our lives. And, oh, gosh, I really do hope that in this political climate where Donald Trump is saying some crazy things. And I think you're right. Young people aren't necessarily motivated by uh, the Democratic uh, Party right now. Um, we're, you know, going to have to figure out a way we can compartmentalize and build a good future for tomorrow. That's all we can do. That's not a choice. That's our only option. We either do it better or we do it worse. I opt for let's do it better. Janet Napolitano, it was so great to have you on Press Advance. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much.
Well, that was great. I learned so much from former Secretary Napolitano, former Governor Napolitano, former President of the UC System Napolitano. She has been duly credited with so many accomplishments in her career. She's been given the awards as Forbes' most powerful woman multiple times, and she's really led with grace. I think, you know, hearing from her that she's even worked with her Republican predecessor on raising the concerns of Mayorkas's impeachment. You know, normally, I think everyday Americans do not think about what it means to impeach a Homeland Security Secretary. But the precedent that you set up, you basically make it so that it can become a partisan tool. So if you don't like the party, you can impeach whatever leader in either party. I mean, it's dangerous. We'll see what happens. The Senate obviously will quickly throw it out. But my hope is that it hasn't set a precedent so that one party decides to impeach just over political differences. So much more we can do together. As you know, in listening to Press Advance, we really believe in that respect, empower, include kind of politics, in trying to find solutions and driving the conversation forward. I really am grateful for our audience that's growing every week, and I love the feedback that you give me. So anytime you have feedback, please hit me up at Johanna Masca on social media. Our podcast is produced by the talented team behind Situation Room Studios, led by Christine Barada, and my thanks every week for their hard work putting this together.